You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. So Psalm chapter 98, uh, we've been in the Psalms for the past, I don't know, six, seven weeks now, and we had initially stepped into this study because of what we were seeing in the book of Ephesians, that we have a responsibility to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, the idea being that the truths that are contained in God's songbook need to be sung to one another. Even if they're not sung uh, with music, they need to be spoken to each other as a means of encouragement, as a means of communication, because really when songs are written, they are meant to get truth in the forefront of our face, right? Like when, when people write songs, it's an expression of truth, but it's meant to be given to others in a memorable way. So, you know, from a secular standpoint, if a, if a boy writes a love song about a girl, it's an expression of feelings that he has, but it's meant to be expressed in a way that becomes memorable to those that hear that song, right? And so that's what's happened here in, in the book of Psalms. It's a collection of, of poetry and songs that God's people wrote in expression to what they knew about God, and they did it in ways that would be memorable to those that would come across it in the future. And so we need to be mindful of the truth that is being given to us in the front of our face today, found in Psalm chapter 98. So I want to read to you, starting in verse 1. It says, "'O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With the trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Our summary sentence for today, God's faithfulness is seen in the works of salvation he has already provided, which gives us continued peace joy, and hope in the present as we await the future works of salvation that are still to come. God's faithfulness is seen in the works of salvation he has already provided, which gives us continued peace, joy, and hope in the present as we await the future works of salvation that are still to come. For our kids, what God has done gives us great hope about what he will do. What God has done gives us great hope about what he will do do. What he has done gives us confidence of what he will do. Now, we read some passages of scripture before I came up here today. We read from Psalm 105, 23 through 45. Uh, Adam McLeod read Luke 1, or 46 through 55, the song of Mary. And then we also read Luke 2, 25 through 35. These are specific passages that I picked because they show God's remembrance of his people and how he acted accordingly. So when, when we read from Psalm 105, this is recounting what had taken place in Egypt, right? God had remembered his covenant, remembered his people, and he worked and acted in such a way to release Israel from Egypt. Um, Mary singing about the, the remembrance of God and his works of salvation that are come through 
the one given to her. And then Simeon rejoicing over the fact that he was seeing with his eyes the Messiah that had been promised long ago. These all deal with God's remembrance and his subsequent action. Now Psalm 98 speaks to us, uh, and it speaks to the questions that God's people often ask when they feel forgotten about him. When they feel that God has forgotten them, Psalm 98 speaks to God's people. So it speaks to us today. You may be at a point in time in your life right now where you feel like God has forgotten you or God is not remembering you in ways that you want to be remembered. Uh, Questions that we might ask ourselves are, uh, where are you, God, in the middle of this that I'm going through? Why is this happening now? When will these circumstances change? How do I get through it? You'll remember from our study in Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 2, Habakkuk was asking similar questions. How long do I have to cry out to you, Lord, before you remember and do something? The joy that's expressed here in this psalm is rooted in the concept that God always, always, always remembers his people. And he always acts as he promised to do. So this psalm is all about expressing joy, singing joy, making a joyful noise to the Lord in response to what? In response to the fact that we worship a God who remembers us. He always remembers us, and he always acts as he's promised to do. Verse 3 tells us, His steadfast love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel, he remembers. Now the call of the psalm, the application of the psalm, is that we're to sing as an expression of what we know and experience about God. That the the natural response from a a Christian is to sing out of joy for what we know about God. Now, I was listening to uh, a random sermon that I found last night when I was walking. Uh, It's a church in, I think, the state of Washington where the guy was preaching on Psalm 98. So I was just kind of listening to his thoughts. And he shared a similar analogy that I was already thinking. The idea that it feels maybe uncommon or uncultural for a group of people to gather together on a morning to sing songs together because that's that's rare for us to do that in any other context and yet when you think about it a little bit it's not as rare as maybe we would initially think right like people go to concerts not necessarily christian concerts secular concerts we go and we sing about commonality right so particular band comes to town, a group of people that appreciate that type of music come together, they sit in a venue, and oftentimes they are singing together songs that don't even matter, right? Like some of the weirdest lyrics, some of the weirdest concepts people unite around. You see this at ball games, right? You go to a baseball game, and in between innings, it's not uncommon for them to play some type of common song over the PA system, and everybody starts singing, right? Uh, I'm one that finds it weird to sing no matter what context I'm in, right? So it's not just Sunday mornings that feel weird to me. Being at a baseball game and everybody singing the same song feels weird to me too, right? My wife loves it. She turns to me and she'll sing and she'll start dancing and want me to join in. And I'm just like, what's happening? Like, why are we doing this, right? Like, it's a weird song that we're singing and everybody's like into it. You get to the seventh inning stretch, right? And everybody stands, stands up and sings the same song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And, and they sing it loud and proud, right? There's this, there's this unity, this commonality that we're in a venue. We appreciate what we appreciate together and we enjoy it. And we enjoy it through song a lot of times. And yet when we come together on a Sunday morning, we revert to this idea that it feels awkward to sing, that it feels awkward to express ourselves. And yet this is where we should find that expression most. What we know about God should lead to vocal singing about who he is 
and what he's done for us. We've all been in settings before probably where uh, maybe you're the type that wants to sing, but you're shaped by the environment that you're in, right? So like if you're in an environment where everybody else seems into the singing, man, you're all about it. But if you're in an environment where everybody seems a little awkward and uncomfortable, you kind of revert to that too. We've all been in settings where the singing has been maybe unhindered, right? I think of uh, a week ago, uh, I went to my first concert since 2004, I think. Uh, Lauren took me to the For King and Country concert, and it was awesome to be there and to, to be with other believers that weren't my church family, right? But to just see that obviously we've come together because of our, our love for our king, and we're singing Christmas songs together, and, and, and people are singing loudly about the coming king, right? It, it was an unhindered environment where it just felt like people were, were dialed into the aspects of singing. Uh, I get this a lot of times when I go and visit Snowbird, whether it's uh, summer camp or whether it's the men's retreat, uh, to be there and to be in an environment where nobody seems to care about how well they sing. They're just excited about singing about who God is, right? That's what the norm should be for us as Christians. The call of the psalm is that we sing as an expression of what we know and experience about God. Now, I chose Psalm 98 today because the, uh, this, this psalm specifically was the inspiration behind Isaac Watts' hymn, Joy to the World. Now, you look at the lyrics of Joy to the World, and it's not that you find the lyrics of Joy to the World here in this psalm, but it's as though Isaac Watts was studying this, and the concept of verse 1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things, led him into writing a new song. So the fruit of his study of Psalm 98 was to sit down and write, to write about the joy that he experiences, the joy of who Christ is in his first coming, but even more so who he is in his second coming, right? Joy to the World wasn't originally written as a Christmas song. It's a song that's very much about the return of Christ, and yet we sing it at Christmas, and it's appropriate to sing it at Christmas because the second coming is only good because of the first coming, right? You back up and read Psalm 97, and you read about some of the the, the majesty of God revealed in some of the terror of his throne room, right? 97, Psalm 97 is enjoyable because of Psalm 98, because Christ has come and is coming once again. Um, and so I chose Psalm 98 today because of the Christmas season, joy to the world, and I hope that we can see why Isaac Watts was compelled to write this song in response to what he saw today. So let's jump in, and we'll see a, a breakdown of this uh, short passage. Number one, find peace in the past works of God. Find peace in the past works of God. So in our summary sentence, we see that peace, joy, and hope, common words used at Christmas time, they can be experienced by us in the present as we look to the past and as we look to the future, specifically starting, first of all, with looking to the past, the past works of God. The psalmist tells us to sing a new song, for he has done marvelous things. He has done marvelous things. Not he will do marvelous things, he will, but he's also highlighting the fact that he has already done marvelous things. So as we look to this future hope we have as Christians that Jesus is coming again, we, we find confidence in that hope because he's already done such marvelous things. Right? He's already done marvelous things. His right hand, his holy arm have worked salvation for him. He's made known his salvation. Number one, he has accomplished the salvation of his people with his mighty acts. He's accomplished the salvation of his people with his mighty acts. Now, 
Psalm 98 is written before Jesus' first coming. So while Isaac Watts was inspired to write a song about the second coming when reading Psalm 98, Psalm 98 in context is written before the first coming. What's it written in context of? Well, some people believe it's written in response to what God had done through releasing Israel from Egypt. Right? So we read today from Psalm 105, which recounts those acts of God, those marvelous things that he did through the plagues of Egypt to release his people. Others believe that it's a response to what God did in delivering Israel from exile, right, when they had been escorted off to Babylon and then brought back to the promised land, God's marvelous work to bring them back. doesn't really matter which one it's in response to because both of those things are marvelous, right? Both of those things are, are great acts of deliverance by God. So whether the psalmist had one in mind over the other really doesn't matter because we want to highlight both of those things. Those are great acts of deliverance by God, and he accomplished both with his mighty arm and hand, which is what Psalm 98 highlights for us. If you go back to Exodus chapter 15, this is after um, the Red Sea is parted and after the Egyptians have been killed when the Red Sea has been brought back together. Moses sings in response, and look what it says. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Look at verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Think about both of these things that I've mentioned to you, Egypt and Babylon. Both times when Egypt is rescued from those situations, they are rescued without their army taking up a sword. Think about that. Like Israel can't think for a second that they have done anything to deliver themselves. God escorts them out of Egypt through the plagues, through the softening of Pharaoh's heart, only to harden his heart once again so that he can put an end to Pharaoh and those Egyptians in the Red Sea. Moses and the people sing about the fact that you delivered us with your right hand, with your holy arm. But then in, in Babylon, as the, the different, um, the different uh, empires are coming and going, it's not because Israel revolts and, and conquers the people that had conquered them. No, God softens hearts and allows them to go back to the promised land. They don't ever have to lift an arm. They don't ever have to fight, right? It's the Lord. And that's the highlight of the psalm here in 98 is that it's he who accomplishes these great things. It's his arm. It's his hand that does it for us. The psalm ultimately, though, points us to Christ and the salvation accomplished by him. Because while these deliverances of Egypt and Babylon were great, they pale in comparison to what he does through Christ. These real comings in the past of God's salvation and deliverance, they all point us to what we experience in the coming Christ and his return. Specifically, our own personal salvation. Right? So we've been thinking in terms of Israel and how Israel in the past have been saved through marvelous things. But think about your own personal salvation. Think about your own personal deliverance. Not from Egypt, not from Babylon, but from the things of this world, from sin. Think about the work the Holy Spirit has done in your heart to open your mind, to open your heart, to enlighten you to the things of Christ. 
Marvelous things. Marvelous things that he has done to, to save us from our sin. And think about how he describes our salvation in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. That our sins have been forgiven and forgotten. Right? That he remembers our sins no more. He's delivered us from them. And he's ongoingly continuing to deliver us. Think about the, the marvelous things he's done in your life. Because he's done them, right? The psalmist points out the fact that he is highlighting, he is singing about the things that God has already done, the marvelous things that he has done. Yes, we're going to praise him for the things he's going to do in the future, but we establish that praise for the future based on what he's already done in our past. So think about even what he's done this past year, things that we can praise him for. Even if it's been a difficult year for you, the ways that he's carried you through those difficulties. The psalmist says we sing a new song, we praise him, Because his right hand, his holy arm, has worked salvation for us. Number two, he's made known his ways of salvation and righteousness clearly to all nations. He's made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations, verse 2 tells us. God delivered and saved Israel from Egypt, and then what did he do? He revealed his righteousness to them through the giving of the law. And he does both of those things. He delivers Israel from Egypt, and then he gives them the holy law. Why? To separate them from the other nations, to set them apart. Why? To to make them better than everybody else, to give them a right to to think that they're uh, more holy or more acceptable? No. Old Testament tells us they were separated to what? To be a light to the other nations. Think about the immediate application of Rahab, right? Rahab comes to faith in Yahweh. Why? She says, I've heard what your God's done. I heard what he did about, about uh, you coming out of Egypt. I've heard what he's already done to some of these surrounding nations. Right? His great acts, his salvation has been made known, not just so that Israel can be saved, but so that all nations can be saved. Right? What God did for Israel was a witness to the Gentile nations and a vivid demonstration of his faithfulness to his covenant and his love for his chosen people. His acts of salvation have drawn not only his chosen in Israel, but also his chosen from all nations. It's what we learned so much about in the book of Ephesians, right? That salvation is not just for Israel, it's for Gentiles too. And we're brought together as one people of God. He's not kept his faithfulness confined confined to a tribal experience of Israel, just like he doesn't keep his majesty confined to them, right? We saw last week in Psalm 8 that his majesty has been made known to all nations, to the ends of the earth, right? It's not just for Israel, it's for all. The same is true for his acts of salvation. He's not kept them confined to Israel. And it's the gospel in the New Testament that makes God's salvation and righteousness known to all today, right? So, God's not delivering Israel from Egypt through plagues today to make himself known, right? He's delivering individuals from sin, bringing them together as one people from every walk of life, from every background, uniting them as one, and then showing the world what it looks like to become a Christian, to be saved from your sin, and to be radically changed, to be radically changed and sanctified, to become the image of Christ. God is making his salvation known. God is making his righteousness known. And so we find peace. We find peace as an individual by looking to our past, seeing God's salvation, his forgiveness, his his forgetting of our sins as he remembers us today. Number two, we express joy in the present as an act of trust. We express joy in the present as an act of trust. 
We have a responsibility to sing in the present as a loud expression of our trust in a God who remembers, right? So the psalmist draws attention to the present, and he says, okay, in light of what's God, what, in light of what God has done in the past, we now sing in the present. We rejoice in the present, no matter what our current circumstances are. No matter what our current circumstances are, we sing in the present because we trust that God remembers us. And by singing, by expressing joy, we are communicating to others that trust in God. We've seen here in Psalm 98, just by reading it, that Israel has a responsibility to sing to God. Gentile nations have a responsibility to sing to God and to praise Him for His salvation. But even as you work through the psalm, you start to see that attention is given to the created order, right? Verse 7, let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. All the earth is to be singing. All of God's creation sings in response to what he's done. Number one, we can have joy because God never forgets his people. We can have joy because God never forgets his people. When life is crumbling around us and the days seem long, the experience of God's people has always been that he doesn't forget. That he does not forget. He never forgets his steadfast love. Right? The psalmist tells us he remembers his steadfast love. Uh, R.C. Sproul says that steadfast love could be maybe even better translated his loyal love. His loyal love. It always remains intact. Even when the circumstances feel like he doesn't remember, right? He remembers in a way that communicates action to us. He hears the groaning. He hears the suffering. Look back with me in Exodus chapter uh, 1 and 2. So you'll remember um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then Jacob has 12, right? And it's Joseph who is taken to uh, Egypt, sold into slavery, what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. God ends up taking the, the family of Abraham down to Egypt during the famine to preserve them. And there's a Pharaoh there who has favor, favor upon Abraham's descendants, right? Gives them uh, preferential treatment, looks after them because of what? Because of what Joseph has done to take care of the Egyptians. But in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Right? The person who takes over control in Egypt, he doesn't remember who the Israelites are. He doesn't remember them. He doesn't have the same experience as the previous Pharaoh, and so he wants to deal with them in a way that puts them into slavery. But look what Exodus chapter 2 says in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Man, it's such a comforting passage. That even in the midst of undesirable circumstances, God never forgot them. God never stopped remembering them. He was aware. He remembered. He knew them. 
He hears the groaning. He hears our suffering. He remembers in a way that communicates more about his purposeful action, not a last-minute response, right? It's not that God kind of awoken from a, from a stupor and said, oh, man, I forgot about the people of Abraham. Like, I need to go do something. They're groaning. They've been crying for a while. I need to fix things for them. No, think about what he said in Genesis 15, 13 through 14. This is back when Abraham doesn't have any kids yet, right? This is before all of this. And what does he say? He says, you're going to go down to Egypt. Your people are going to go down to Egypt. They're going to be there for 400 years before I bring them out, right? Why? Because the sin of the Amorites needs to be filled up. Plus, you guys need to grow into a healthy nation so that you can survive coming into Canaan and overthrowing everybody. It was a planned delay, 400 years before he was going to act. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, uh, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Now, we hear that word remember and we think, oh, does God forget? Does God have to remind himself of us? No. It's like on Christmas morning, and we kind of had this experience yesterday. It's like on Christmas morning when you give your child something and their immediate response is, you remembered what I wanted, right? Mally got this giant plush penguin thing that she was so excited about. She probably reacted more to that than any other present. And I remember her looking to Lauren and saying, you remembered, you got it for me, right? Lauren never forgot it, right? Lauren didn't remember Christmas morning. Oh, I need to run out and grab that penguin thing that, that Mally wanted. Lauren got it the day she wanted it. Mally had forgotten about it, right? And then she thinks to herself, mom, you remembered what I wanted, right? Really what has happened is, is her action, Lauren giving the present to Mally conjures up this idea of you've remembered me because you were acting. That's what's happening with God in the Old Testament. When it talks about God remembering, it's not that he had forgotten. It's no, his people are experiencing him in such a way that draws their attention to the fact that, hey, you, you did remember me. You are acting as you promised to do. And God promised to take care of his people. He never forgets, and the psalmist reminds us to praise him for it. Number two, we can have joy because God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises. Genesis 3.15, the promise that one would come to make all things right once again. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, this one who was promised would come through Abraham's seed, bringing a blessing to all nations. Deuteronomy 18.15, he would be like Moses. 2 Samuel 7.16, he would come from David. Isaiah 7.14, he would come from a virgin. Ezekiel 37.24-27, he would be like David. The last prophecy we have about Jesus is found in the book of Malachi. And then there's 400 years of silence after that, right? 400 years between Malachi being written and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John's accounts of Christ's birth and his life, his death and his resurrection. 400 years pass. Silence. No more prophecies. Did God forget? No. Simeon and his passage reminds us that while every day may feel like every day, and we talked about this at our Christmas party from 2 Peter chapter 3, right? The doubters about Christ's return says, he's not coming back. Every day has been like every other day, right? It's the same day one after another. And that's how Simeon probably felt coming to the temple, right? He had been told, you're not gonna die until you see the Messiah. And he comes to the office every day. And every day he goes home. 
And it's the same day, one after another. Except it wasn't the same one day. Right? One day was different than the other days. Because Jesus was brought into him. The Holy Spirit revealed this is the one. This is the Messiah. This is the longed one. This is the one we've been waiting for. It's the same with Jesus' return, right? We think every day is just like every other day, right? Uh, as a principle, the school years have started to run together, right? I have to remember years by, by, by kids that were in eighth grade that left us to go to high school. But they all just kind of run together. They seem like every, every year is almost like the same the, the previous year. There's coming a day, though, that will be way different than every other day, and that's when Jesus comes back, Right? He remembers his steadfast love. He keeps his promises. He's still fulfilling promises made to Abraham. Right? I love the passage in Psalm 105 that we read today in verse 42. What does he do? He, he fixes things in Egypt. Why? Because he remembers Abraham. Why is that important? Because in Galatians 3.29, we are told that as Christians today, whether we're Jewish or not, we are considered the seed of Abraham. Right? We're the seed of Abraham. And here's what I kind of wrote in my notes is that if God fails to keep his promises today to his people, he fails to keep his promises to Abraham. Think about that. God has attached himself to Abraham and his seed in such a way that God is shown to work and act and move in history. And, it, and we're told that, why did he do it? Because he remembers Abraham. Because he made promises to Abraham. And the comfort that that gives us today is that every single one of us is a spiritual descendant of Abraham. We're his seed. We're his children, Galatians 3 tells us. Which means if we ever think that God has forgotten us or that God is not keeping his promises to us, it's as though we're saying God has forgotten or has failed to keep his promises to Abraham. And we would probably never think that, right? Because Abraham is God's special individual. He chose Abraham, and he did. And he also chose everybody that comes from Abraham. So take comfort in the fact that God remembers you and works on your behalf and keeps promises to you. Why? Because he plans to keep all of his promises to Abraham. Look what David Platt says. He says, uh, God promises to strengthen us in the middle of our weakness, to give us wisdom in the middle of our confusions, peace in the midst of our turmoils, rest in the midst of our stresses, calm in the midst of our anxieties, courage in the face of our fears, and hope in the face of our despairs. Number three, we keep hope in the future fulfillment of his promises. We keep hope in the future fulfillment of his promises. Number one, the world awaits the day when all creation is set free from sin. The world is waiting for this as much as the believers are. Right? Romans 8 talks about this in verses 18 through 25, how nature longs to be more alive than it is today. Nature longs to be more than what it is today. The rivers are clapping, the hills are singing, the seas are roaring, and all that fills it, praising God, waiting for his return, waiting to be released from the decay of sin. I mean, think about how great nature is. And we talked about this last week, about how the, the marvelous products of God's creation that we get to observe and experience, whether it's sunsets or you know, beach walks or visits to the mountains, where we can see his glory on display through the, the, the created works. And now think about the fact that they aren't as good as they should be. Even as masterpieces, they're not as good as they should be because they're subjected to sin like we are. And they long to be set free too. The world waits for the day when all of creation is set free. And then number two, the world also awaits the day 
when righteousness and equity are the norm. We sing this new song. Why? Because the Lord has made known His salvation. He's revealed His righteousness. It's He who has done it with His right hand. He's remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness. To the ends of the earth, He has shown His salvation. We make a joyful noise. We sing songs. We sing loudly. We sing triumphantly because of what Christ has done for us. Even the, the, na- the, the nature around us will join in. Why? Verse 9, Before the Lord... For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. He's described here in Psalm 98 as a deliverer, the one who brings salvation, as a king, one who is ruling now, and one who even comes to judge later. We've already seen how he brings salvation through the the experiences in Egypt and Babylon, right? I put in my notes, he will come to deal with the world like he did with Egypt and with Babylon. And he will come to deal with the church like he did with Israel. Like That's our hope, is that just like he came and dealt with Egypt and dealt with Babylon and brought judgment upon them and brought equity to his people who were being persecuted, he will do the same thing in the future for us. He will come and deal with the world around us just like he did with Egypt and Babylon. And he will deal with the church just like he did with Israel. He will remember us and he will save us. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. The idea of Psalm 98 is that we are to sing in response to this. Charles Spurgeon, in response to his study in Psalm 98 and the idea of singing, said, He will do this best who is most in love with Jesus. There is the voice of conversation, the voice of complaint, the voice of pleading, the voice of command. Man's voice is at its best when it sings the best words in the best spirit to the best of beings. The love of God and the conquest of Emmanuel should win to themselves man's sweetest strains. May not the birds of the air rebuke our sullen and ungrateful silence. The idea there is the more we're in love with Jesus, the more we will be prompted to sing. The more we know of his deliverance and his salvation, the more we are prompted to sing. We see Moses and the people of Israel doing that right after they're delivered from Egypt. The problem is we also saw them right before that complaining like crazy about the predicament that they felt like God had put them in, right? Before the the seas are parted and before they come crashing down, they are complaining to Moses. They're complaining to Moses. How dare you bring us here? How dare you bring us here to die? Look what Exodus 14 says. Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Here's where we've got to reverse our thinking, is that we are way more prone to be loud before God's salvation right? Loud with our complaints, loud with our grumbling, loud with our dissatisfaction. And then God remembers and delivers. And too often we fail to give him praise and glory and honor for it. That's when we become silent, right? Moses tells the people, hey, be silent right now, right? Like God's about to deliver you. You be silent right now. 
And then when he delivers you, you sing, and you sing a new song. You praise him for what he's done. So our application today is that we embrace a lifestyle of singing the joy that comes from trusting in a God who always remembers. And I put singing in quotes there because, as we've said before, I, I don't expect your life to become a musical, right? Like, I don't expect you to, to, to be singing all the time. Uh, but there is a, a joy that overflows from people who are in love with Christ and who are trusting him. Even when they're not singing, their joy is, is, is being expressed. But oftentimes, when we're as joyous as we can be, it overflows with singing, right? Uh, my kids bring me great joy. I have theme songs for my kids, right? When I see them playing in the house, like I'll just break out in song and start singing about them individually. Now, their, their music is written by secular people because I just take secular music and add my words to it and change it to, to adapt to my kids. I sing because my kids bring me joy, right? And I'm just prompted to sing, and they all have their theme song that they get whenever I see them, and I'm, I'm experiencing joy with them. Right? As Christians, we should experience joy of what Christ has done for us. It should prompt us to sing. And so uh, I asked Tyson today to hold our, most of our songs until the end um, because I'm going to pray for us, and then he's going to come, and we're going to sing. We're going to sing in response to what we've seen today in Psalm 98. God, we praise you and thank you for who you are. We're praising you and thanking you today for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for remembering us. Not that you've ever forgotten us, but like a kid on Christmas morning who has given great gifts through actions of their parent and think to themselves, hey, you remembered me. We're saying today, we know that you remember us because we've seen you do marvelous things this year. We see you doing marvelous things even now. We praise you and we thank you for that. God, help us to learn to be silent while we wait for your deliverance and then to be loud and boisterous with our singing after the deliverance. Minimize our complaining, minimize our grumbling, ignite our voices in singing to you, praising you for your faithfulness and your steadfast love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.